Welcome to the Morning Glory Project, Stories of Determination. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani Fossbinder. Like in nature, we see determined flowers and vines clinging to life and seeking light. So are Morning Glory people. And in this podcast, I'll interview writers, activists, artists, entrepreneurs, survivors, and thrivers, and trailblazers of all kinds. These are folks that have been determined to get over, under, around, and through the obstacles that face them, or to seize the opportunities that come before them. I find these people inspiring and amazing. I know you will too. It is my pleasure today to welcome to the Morning Glory Project, Carmen Martinez. Carmen is a therapist in San Francisco, California, not too far from where I sit. And she has a fascinating history and a fascinating philosophy that she brings to her therapy. She's in the process of getting her PhD in a very unusual topic that we're going to talk about in a moment. You can find out more about Carmen by going to CarmenMartinezTherapy.com. And that's Martinez spelled with an S instead of a Z. And you can find out more about what she does there. But for our conversation, let me welcome Carmen Martinez. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Betsy. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So Carmen, like lots of therapists, you came to therapy in part because of your own history. Uh, I was a nanny for a long time. I worked for 13 years in San Francisco, Berkeley, Oakland, Paris, uh, Burning Man. (laughs) (laughs) And I had uh, this is going to sound hilarious because it's so it's such a typical thing to say. I had a spiritual awakening or a sort of kind of come to Jesus moment at Burning Man. Realized I did not want to be a nanny. I wasn't happy in the career. Had some conflict with an employer, and in that moment, went to someone that I knew in recovery. So I'm sober, mm-hmm. and at Burning Man, there's sober community. And I went to someone and he, and he said, well, you know, he, he said a lot of things, but it basically boiled down to, you know, Carmen, you're really so smart. You are, you're a babysitter getting paid to be a therapist. And I was like, what? And he's like, you're a child psychologist being paid babysitter wages. Go back to school. And I was shocked. I, I think I've been searching for a career for a long time. I'm a writer writing for a long time um and it just was like this little domino got tipped over i reached out to somebody who i knew who was at burning man who was at the california institute of integral studies and i said hey can you tell me about cias she's like oh my god you'd be perfect (laughs) (laughs) and i was like okay well tell me about the weekend program because you had to pay the rent, right? <laughs> I had to pay the rent. I live in San Francisco. It's expensive. Um, and so I looked into it, and just one thing fell into place after another, again and again and again. I called to make the appointment for the open house, and the person on the phone recognized me. Is this Carmen from the rooms? And I was like, oh, my gosh, yes. <laughs> and she's like, oh, this is perfect for you. You should apply. It's funny when you say this, Carmen, because – There's a quote that I love, and I can't attribute it to the originator, but I can tell you who I heard say it. I heard Barbara Mm -hmm. Streisand, of all people, say it many years ago when she was being interviewed by Rosie O'Donnell, of all people. And she said, when at the moment of commitment, the universe conspires to support you. Yes, 
Absolutely. And I don't think she originated the words, but they have hung with me ever since. And it sounds like that's what happened. You you had this sort of inspirational moment. You got that mentor saying, you know, go go to school, you can do this. And then all of a sudden the universe conspired to support those efforts. Absolutely. And it was such a shift for me and I was so excited. Um, I applied I, and I got in and that was, shoot, I graduated in 2018 with my master's and I just went straight into a PhD program. I blame one of my professors. Uh, I love her, Doris Lessing. She said, well, Carmen, you might as well go for your PhD because by the time you get licensed as an MST, you'll be close to finishing a PhD. And she was pretty right. I'll be finishing up getting my license by the end of the year. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Uh, what was situation with COVID. Oh, I know. Well, COVID is changing everything right now. So that's the kind of mechanicals of how you got into this work. But I'm wondering, what is it in your history that drove you to want to to be a therapist? Well, you know, when I look back, I've been a caretaker all of my life. Um, the oldest of two, um, my mother and father, Separated when I believe I was about four or five. I'm not 100% certain. There's a lot of um, amnesia around that time. Um, mm. Family amnesia? Uh, childhood sexual abuse trauma in my history. Mm. Um, I was uh, molested by my grandfather, and I was the whistleblower for that. And it was very dramatic, but I don't have any memory of it. Um, I have a dissociative memory of one episode with my grandfather and a little bit of a faint, fuzzy memory of my father sort of coming to the rescue, but no, I love him so much, but he's an alcoholic and he was always an alcoholic and he just couldn't, he couldn't quite do it. He got me out of the situation, but couldn't keep raising me. And so my mom and my sister and I, kind of grew up together. Uh, my mom relocated. She left my father, left the left California where I was born here and moved us back to Wisconsin and raised me and my sister as a single mother. But my mother is also an alcoholic and an addict. And so things were quite chaotic. And dangerous. And dangerous. And um, unfortunately, my mother left me with another perpetrator when I was six. Oh, wow. um, and I was raped by my babysitter. So I'm gonna I'm gonna insert a pause there because mm-hmm. even in our prior conversations, it's so easy. I, I, first of all, I'm just so sorry that happened. I'm sorry that happened to you as a little girl. I'm sorry for the grown woman that has to deal with the scars and memories of that. And we've gotten better, I think, at telling the truth about these things in our culture, at least better than it used to be. Mm-hmm. but I always want to slow it down because it shouldn't be something that we just kind of gloss over. Not, not that you were doing that, mind you, but I always feel the need to sort of slow that down and say, now, wait a minute, a six-year-old girl got raped by a babysitter. Like there should be huge outrage <laughs> over <laughs> yeah. such things. And we've gotten to where we just kind of toss it off like, you know, Hey, do you want arugula in your salad? You know, I mean, it's, uh-huh. and yeah. and not that again, not that you were doing that, but I'm so sorry that happened. And so you are you are a survivor then, yes. And you're also a person in recovery. Mm-hmm. I am. Yeah, 
I wasn't really capable of dealing with uh, that abuse. And for a long time, I didn't have words for it. I couldn't talk about it. Um, I could talk about it glibly once in a while. Um, but I definitely was using substances to run away from it. Mm -hmm. uh, started out very young with sugar, uh, fantasy, reading. Um, and then, you know, I escaped into school, definitely. Uh, I was a bit of an overachiever. Well, so so some of your escapes, some of your escapes were healthy ones. Yeah, yeah, I, I think the escape into school is pretty. Uh, it was a it was a good outlet. I actually didn't drink until I was fairly late, <laughs> which I find funny when I say that. I was seventeen, um, which in your family would have been very late. Very late. Yeah, my sister started using pretty early and drinking pretty early, and so too with my mom. But again, that those those systems of trauma in my family, just on both sides, generation after generation after generation. Well, and that's, that's the other thing that's so often the case in families is that these patterns get etched, both biological patterns, if you inherit a propensity toward addiction, but also environmental patterns to say nothing of if you're a trauma, if you're traumatized by what has been going on, then one of the escapes that's available to you is to get intoxicated in one form or another. And whether that's chemical or entertainment or academic or whatever, you know, some of those are clearly better options than others, but it's, I always tell people that it's, it's pathologically normal <laughs> to want to escape pain. Pain. Yeah. And if there isn't a legit method to do that, or if you've inherited an environment or a biology that makes you vulnerable to chemical addiction, mm -hmm. then it's almost a fait accompli <laughs> yes. in, yes. Yep. in some ways. Yep. No? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's what I discovered when I was in my master's program. And I think I sort of knew. I was like, oh, self-medicating. I was, I was trying to fix something. But I was trying to fix it with something that eventually kind of well, turned around and bit me. Yeah. Right. It worked for a little while. Well, see, that's the thing too. That's the thing about drugs and alcohol is they work for a while. They really do. And I'm not, I'm not advocating that that's the thing that one should choose, <laughs> but, but I think we have to be honest and admit that, that part of the reason that they're so rampant is that they're so effective. Yes, exactly. Yeah. At least for a time until they start inflicting their own pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell me, and here's here's where our conversation takes an atypical turn, because I've talked with lots of recovering people and lots of therapists in different ways, but you also discovered in a, an unusual, I don't want to call it a remedy, but a, but a, <laughs> an unusual treatment experience yes. for your own recovery process. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, um, it's something that I'm working on my PhD. Uh, so this is the, I, the, 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 your, your dissertation is about this. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So currently, um, my dissertation topic is the transformative tattoo. What can healing from trauma look like? How has one woman in recovery from alcoholism and addiction restoried her body using tattoos? So I want to linger on a word there cause I'm a word girl. Uh-huh. Restoried. 
Restory, yes. So there's restored and there's restoried. Tell me about that. So this is the use of tattooing oneself as a portion of one's recovery. Yes. And yes. healing so, process. So tell me about that and tell me about restoring. I'm sure you know that trauma steals the voice. It's really hard to talk about trauma. Say it again. Trauma steals the voice. It steals the voice. It quiets it. You can't talk about it. I think society's afraid to hear about it. There's so many of us that are walking around with these traumas. And when I got sober, when I stopped drinking and using 15 years ago, I got into a community of fellows in San Francisco in the Mission District. Lots of artists and writers and musicians and just amazing people whose stories about their family systems and their using and drinking were very similar to mine. And well, a lot of them are tattooed. Now, I, I don't know that at the time I was thinking about this, but I think it settled into me unconsciously. That you were watching recovering people getting tattooed as part of telling their story on their body or restorying their story on their body? Yes. And again, I didn't really, I don't think, I think when I started getting tattoos, there was a part of me that just wanted to fit in. I was looking to join my tribe. I wanted to be a cool kid maybe, but I also recognized something somatically when my best friend died, when I was two years sober and I got a commemorative tattoo and it was so helpful. My tattoo artist was sober. He'd known about my friend's death. I walked in and he said, you're, you're not getting, we had planned something else. He's like, you're not getting that, are you? I said, no, I want a commemorative tattoo. And he just picked me up and he gave me this big bear hug. And then he told me his story about losing a friend and how he has a, a black star. And a number of people in the community had a black star for this person. And then I told him about the tattoo I wanted. He designed it, and it's on my forearm. And it says, until I die, he will not leave my side. And it's two mm-hmm. white French tulips. And that's the last line of the poem, um, elegy, that Dylan Thomas wrote for his father. So my friend is always with me. Mm-hmm. And that pain of getting the tattoo helped me locate the emotional pain that I couldn't deal with. And it just sort of like anchored into my skin. Okay, so let, let's hang out there for a second. Yeah. Because I've I've worked with and am among and know many trauma survivors. Mm-hmm. And what those who don't, who, who either haven't sustained trauma or maybe just don't understand it yet, is trauma lives not only in the psyche and the mind, but it lives in the body. In the body, yeah. And it that's that can sound like kind of, hooey gooey woo woo stuff to somebody that that doesn't but but really what it means is that on a cellular level your your body remembers and holds those things so so you're what you're doing it sounds like tell, tell me if i'm guessing this right you your body got taken from you the the will of your body got taken from you by somebody who would molest or assault it and it seems like what you're saying is that this is your way of claiming it back and saying, no, I'm going to tell a new story in my body, with my body, so that it can be seen. And some of them are probably only seen by you or your most intimate loved one, <laughs> um, but that some of them are also visible to the world. Oh, yeah. Um, most of them are visible. So am I saying that right for you? Like this is about kind of claiming your body back? Yes. It's reclaiming my body. It's somatically reauthoring. It's 
you know, transformation, um, you know, it's, it's saying, it's saying something. You, you don't get to have this. This is mine. You know, I claim it. You know, it's also kind of armor. You know, I think women in the world, we're expected, we're looked at in a certain way. You know, we're objectified. And I'm like, no, I claim my body. This is mine. And Oh, so you're, you're not going to, you don't get to just look at me and tell your story about women. I'm going to put some story on the screen for you here. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that, I, I, right? Absolutely. I was once doing a trauma training and you know, I was talking to the man who was running it and, and he said, well, you know, the tattoos are saying something that can't be ignored. Hmm. And I, I really believe that, that for a long time, I wasn't able to vocalize what had happened to me, but I was telling the story through the tattoos and every tattoo I got somehow or another seemed to be renegotiating the ownership of my body. This is my body and I'm claiming it and I'm recreating something stronger. And you're restorying. And, and by that, that it's like you, you couldn't control what happened to you yes. as a child. You couldn't mm -hmm. control that, but you, the only part of it that you have control over is the story you tell about it. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like that's what you're claiming. Now, let, let me also clarify, of course, not everybody has to get a tattoo to get better. Oh gosh, no. That's, <laughs> this, <laughs> no, this is not, not recommended therapy no. for everybody at no, all. That's not, not what you're saying. No. And there are some individuals that take tattooing and, and, and body alteration to such an extreme that it's, that it is self mutilative and not a healthy activity. So that is not what we're talking about here. No, this, no. We're talking about somebody who in a conscious state is choosing to restory herself in a healthy way. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll confess to you and you and I in our, in our preliminary conversation talked about this. Chances are if you and I were spotted that people would look at me in one way and you in another. First <laughs> yeah. of all, you're first of all you're younger and you're Latina and and I'm white and I'm older and all of those things. So we might have different stories that people put on us. And I may look the more conventional person you know, for whatever I may or may not be, but I may appear as the more conventional person. I'm I'm not a tattoo person. I'm just not. I've you know it, they can be beautiful on somebody else, mm -hmm. but there are very few permanent decisions I'd want to live with forever. And but at the same time, I chose to get a tattoo a number of years ago on my forearm after my brother's suicide. I felt the need, and I didn't know that Dylan quote. I may have to steal that <laughs> from you at some point. Um, but uh, but I. I felt the need to have something that, and I've, it's been largely private. It's a, it's on the, on my forearm that, you know, in business situations, I wear a sleeve and it's not apparent and all of that, but it, it's been something that I did as a way to, for my own remembrance. It's a, it's commemorative, but it's also no surprise here, everybody. It's a, it's a morning glory. Yeah. And oh. I, it's part of why I chose to name this, the morning glory project is about it's about recovering. It's about seeking the light even after darkness. It's about growing even after something chops you down. So I, I yeah. though I'm not as elaborately tattooed as you, and people can see in your beautiful photographs that we'll have on their website, I really, I'm surprisingly attuned to what you're saying mm -hmm. because of what I've gone through too. Yeah. Yeah, I... 
I feel really grateful that I was able to make the connection when I was in my master's program to what I was doing, you know, because it was an unconscious process for me. At first. Yes. And um, I I get a star tattoo for every year's party that I've had. So right now I have 15 stars. And 15 years of sobriety, 15 yeah. stars. Pretty nice. Uh-huh. And I was getting one, and it hit me differently when I was getting it. And I think it was maybe star 11. And it struck me that it was a little painful in a way that it hadn't been painful before. Hmm. And I had been taking a trauma class in my master's program and, and reading a lot about how trauma affects the body. Uh, reading Bethel Vanderkoek, The Body Keeps the Score. And I thought, oh, I wonder. I wonder if... I don't need to get tattoos anymore. Or if, you know, because I hadn't gotten a lot of large pieces. I had started out with a lot. After I got my commemorative tattoo, something got triggered. Something got fired up. I, in that time, it was a really challenging time for me and my life and my recovery. At two years, my best friend died. I started having PTSD flashbacks. All the trauma that I had experienced my childhood and growing up was coming up. And I wasn't drinking. I wasn't using and I started getting tattoos. They helped me to kind of cope with what was going on with me somatically, even if I couldn't articulate it. And then it slowed down. I got into a couple of uh, other 12-step programs. I dealt with uh, my eating disorder. I got into therapy. I started using antidepressants. Hmm. But I kept going back and always getting a star. So you're not saying that tattoos fixed you. You're saying that no. they were part of a whole constellation of yes of efforts yes. that you were taking and you know i'm wondering when you, when you said that that one that one hurt in a way that the others hadn't i wonder if it's that it's i'm presumptuous to say this so tell me if i'm wrong it sounds as if you were waking up and getting more conscious of pain yes i definitely was that maybe you were numbed to it before i think i was numb to it but also that i was so uncomfortable in my body for such a long time. You know, I, I think I often was disassociating out of my body um, mm. and that the tattoos anchored me in. I would be floating outside of myself and the tattoos would pull me in. And the process of watching a tattoo heal was really transformative. Mm. The colors, I, I have a very colorful tattoos, choosing the specific designs, working with my artists. And then, yes, when I, when I was in my master's program, so this, you know, this is like, eight, nine years after I started getting some of the bigger pieces, I would start really having some curiosity about it. I'm like, I think I've been using tattoos to heal my trauma, Hmm. to heal specifically my sexual abuse trauma, because that ownership, like somebody else owned my body and that it would happen, especially before I was sober, that I would sort of collapse in sexual situations. And so I I actually went through a period of time where I was like, I'm not dating anybody. Hmm. I can't be with anyone. You know, I had been in a five-year relationship, and I think it was single after that for about seven or eight years. I'm like, nope, done. Yeah. <laughs> and so that that the taking back my body and and recreating that story and getting the tattoos really helped me to move through that. You know what it sounds like, Carmen. You know, and, and again, if if I'm use a use a phrase or a way of talking about this that you don't like, let me know. But it's almost like the positive version of branding one's self yes. of no, I'm going to, I'm going to be my own brand. <laughs> and I don't mean branding like a horse, you know, or like a, 
cow in that way. Although, of course, you're marking your own body. Right. No, and people um, do do branding. I've never done a brand that's not spent something that appeals to me. I don't but, cut but either, but yeah. <laughs> but you're, you're kind of rebranding your own body. Like, this is mine, and I'm going to say what I want to say about it. And I, and I don't really care what you think about it. Is there some of that in there too? That yeah. I don't I don't care what you think, whether you like my tattoos or not. Yeah, they're for me. So yeah, I started realizing that I started and I used it as the jumping off point for applying for the PhD program and doing a lot of research. And I, yeah, I've done <laughs> over the last couple of years just done lots and lots of research. But yeah. And do you find with the clients that you see or with, with others in recovery, do you find that um you're able to help them kind of connect those dots in a way as well that you're, you're able to help them use tattooing in a constructive way, if that's their choice. Well, you know, the funny thing is um, I don't talk about tattoos very often with my clients. Okay. So you're doing more conventional trauma therapy. Yes, I do more conventional trauma therapy. However, I do have a surprising number of clients who are tattooed. Now, I think like calls to like unconsciously quite often that in my experience working with women in recovery, boy, does it seem like I have the same story, you know, and I've used tattoos as a way of opening up a conversation with a client. Tell me the story of your tattoos. And everybody has a story. Everybody has a story about their tattoos. Now, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and many of my clients have commemorative tattoos death of a parent, death of a friend, death of a pet. Well, and somebody can have a negative story too. Like, I don't remember getting this one because I was so intoxicated. I don't have a clue. Or I got this because I, you know, so there can be negative stories as well. There are plenty of negative stories. I I haven't experienced that in my own practice, but I've experienced that in the research that I've done. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know some people are surprised that I'm a therapist because I'm so tattooed. Um, But is it's something as far as like bringing it into the work? I don't really bring it into the work. It's something that I hold. I hold it in my body. I hold it in my person. Well, and and as is typical to a lot of therapists are not bringing their own story to their clients, which is that's just good professional boundaries, by the way. <laughs> so I, was, I wasn't implying that you were you're a tattoo therapist or something. <laughs> That'd be kind of strange, but that you. I wonder if you're able, because just because of your awareness of it, if if your clients bring it up that you can hold it in a different way than perhaps some people yes, might. Yes, absolutely. I believe so. I do believe so. What have you learned about trauma recovery, aside from tattoos, but just in general? What have you learned? About- <laughs> it's really important to tell this story because it's a story that gets hush-hushed, right? It's not, the child is threatened. It's a secret. You can't tell anybody. And if you do tell anyone, especially when you're a child, the ramifications are so huge. Your family system blows up. There's, there's arguments, there's fights, there's, you know, confrontation, there's running away. Um, people don't want to believe it. There's denial. You know, there's so much denial, you know, and then a child doesn't know how to integrate that. Um, I would say one of the, the worst experiences for me was when I shared about you know, some of what had happened that and I love my mother and I know she was doing the best she could at that time to cope with it. But when I, when I let her know about what happened with the babysitter and myself, 
her response was so fearful and scared and, and overpowering to me that I blanked everything out. Mm-hmm. I couldn't hold it anymore. And so I see that with trauma. It's like, there's shadows of it. You know, there are things there. I'll hear something in a client's voice and, and I, I mark it. I'm like, that. there's something there it's lurking. Mm-hmm. And it shows up in people's decision-making and how they move through the world, hypervigilance, you know, <laughs> And I just, I can see that so many people have these stories that they're able to talk about or articulate or speak to. And they also don't understand why they're doing what they're doing. So as a therapist, I get to see that and look at the patterns and and hopefully be able to fish them out. It's been my experience and perhaps yours too, that trauma, particularly that happens in childhood and early childhood, is especially hard to articulate because you didn't then have words. Exactly. And the only way that you, you know, how we learn words is that our parents or our caretakers teach us those words. So if we have, if we don't have the words and our caretakers don't want to hear those words and don't want to teach us those words, how in the world could you possibly have formed cogent linear language around it? Yes. And that's where the tattoos helped me to do that. Hmm. I began to be able to talk about the story by the tattoos. And and so it doesn't strike me as much different other than that the canvas is your body. It doesn't strike me as that much different than an artist who uses canvas or somebody mm-hmm. who makes beautiful gardens to, to show their own growth and healing or people that use music or other art forms. So it's just that you are your own canvas. And because your body was part of what was subjected to the trauma, you had other other traumas as well, of course, but, but that some of them took place with your body, it seems natural that you would claim that as your canvas. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's my book and I'm getting to tell a different story and I get to narrate it. I get to design it and, and I love my artwork. (laughs) Well, and like I said, your folks are going to want to go on to the morningglory.com and see photographs of Carmen and her, her beautiful tattoos. And <laughs> we're going to post them on there. You, you mentioned also an organization called Survivors Inc. And that's Inc. with a K. Yep. As in Tattoo Inc. Survivors Inc. Can you tell me about what that is? Uh, it was a group out of Ohio that um, one of the members of my uh, PhD committee had informed me about, just to check them out, uh, was a woman who was in sex trafficking and who had been tattooed by her pimp. And it's often something that's done in sex trafficking, women or children or you know men too, but they'll get a tattoo and they're owned, they're slaves. And so they are branded. They're branded. And this woman, she came out of it and started um, helping women in the community who wanted to either... Well, they weren't, they weren't getting, they were getting a cover-up. So she started working with a tattoo artist to provide cover-ups for these women so they, they could not have the name of their perpetrator on them. Right. So again, I'm going to slow us down here and just link. Folks that have been recruited or kidnapped into sex trafficking or prostitution or whatever are getting tattooed by the, with either symbols or the names of their pimp or perpetrators. And you, whereas your tattoos are this evidence of you rewriting your story on your body. Yes. Somebody has literally written 
their story on these bodies. So Survivors Inc. is about helping them to reclaim and refashion and redesign their own story on their Mm -hmm. body. That's really beautiful. There's a similar, and and I'm forgetting the name of it, but there is another tattoo shop in Chicago that does something similar with uh, members who are coming out of prison who have gang tattoos, but they don't want to be affiliated with the gang any longer. And so the tattoo shop will help them get a different design for them instead of having the the gang gang tattoo. Karma, I I could talk to you about this for days <laughs> because it it fascinates me. I'm so I'm so touched and honored that you are a survivor that you came through what you came through and that you somehow found that determination that resiliency in you that turned your horror really the horror of your early traumas into helping others. I'm touched and honored that you would share that story with me today. For listeners, you can find out more by going to Carmen Martinez with an S therapy.com. If you have survived sex trafficking or prostitution and have been harmed by someone else in terms of tattoos, you may want to check out Survivors Inc. That's Inc. with a K. And Carmen, thank you so much for sharing your story and your story of your story (laughs) with with us today. I'm so pleased to have you. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I've been reflecting on my conversation with Carmen (laughs) and what an amazing person to have overcome all that she has. And I know that she didn't do this with one decision. She made lots of decisions and had a whole constellation of strategies for healing herself from the traumas that she's endured. Of course, therapy and meditation, all the things that she's read and done and the support that she's gotten. But one of her strategies stood out, of course, as unique and different. And that's what I was speaking with her about. And that is that she's chosen to use body art as part of her own personal recovery process, using tattooing. And at first that may seem peculiar to some, I imagine, But when you think about it, I loved her term that she is restorying herself, (laughs) restorying, telling her own story her way instead of letting what others have done to her tell her story. She claimed it back and she's choosing to restory that with her body on the very body that was violated. What a fascinating thing, right? And you know, maybe tattooing is not for you. That's fine. But you can restory. We can all restory ourselves. Some do it by singing their story, writing their story, painting their story, dancing it. And I just really like that idea of claiming back your own story. You know, as I was raising my sons, my husband and I raising our boys that are now both adult men that I'm proud of. Like most parents, when the kids were small, we discouraged them from using foul language, you know, obscene language, those kinds of things, just mostly because we wanted to teach them to communicate well and to be appropriate in social situations. That's all fine. And as they grew to teenagehood and all of that, of course, things loosen up a little bit. And my husband and I relaxed our own language that we used more privately and didn't edit ourselves as much. But we taught our kids to sort of be bilingual, right? To use, 
you know, there might be language that's appropriate in the dugout, <laughs> but that might not be so appropriate when you're in the classroom with your teacher. And that's fine. We all make those adaptations wherever we are. So I didn't have tight and strict rules about good words and bad words. I mean, we didn't allow ugly, racist, mean, cruel kinds of things to be said. We just discouraged that as general practice. But in terms of there being words that weren't allowed, the four-letter words that kind of freak some people out, we just didn't do that. But there was one phrase that I really didn't allow. I don't use it, and I didn't, when I heard it, I would discourage it. And it's because I find this particular phrase more vulgar, more obscene than a lot of what people call four-letter words. And the phrase is, shut up. I've never liked that phrase. The phrase was used a great deal in my household growing up. I hear it used a lot. It's such a violent word that I think it should be reserved for the rarest of occasions. When somebody is being so vile and so ugly that we tell them, that's enough. I can't listen to you anymore. But in general, the word shut up says, you don't get to tell your story. <laughs> Stop talking. You don't get to. And I just find that really offensive. I find that much more obscene than some other language. Our stories, it's what makes us who we are. And sharing them is our right. It's our birthright. It's our human right. And not only do we get to tell our story, we get to restory it if someone else has told it differently. That's a big old extra bloom for me today, and I'm going to hold on to that. Thank you so much for listening to the Morning Glory Project. I'm so pleased to have you spend time with us today. And I hope that wherever you are, you can tell your story and that you are finding a way to bloom. <laughs>